Welcome, comrades, to the Spectre of Communism podcast. Now, on this show, we spend a lot of time talking about our opposition to capitalism and all of the horrors it creates, all of the inequality, all of the chaos and precarity. And we talk about building socialism, fighting for communism. But what would socialism and what would communism look like? To help us answer these questions, we have Adam Booth, who is editor of Socialist.net, website of Socialist Appeal, which is the British section of the international Marxist tendency. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the latest and newest podcast, Jay. Our pleasure. It was such a pleasure having you on the IMR. We could not have you on the spectre of communism. I also should say that Adam is the author of an article in the latest issue of the In Defense of Marxism theoretical magazine, which you can just about here. Uh, issue 43, about the trials and tribulations the Bolsheviks faced in building the Soviet economy. Um, anything you want to say about the article, Adam, to get people excited? Uh, well, it relates a bit to the discussion we're having today. There's obviously some lessons we can learn from the Soviet economy in terms of uh, the tasks that will face uh, a society in the future construction of socialism. Great, and I'll put a link in the description of this episode that you can use to buy a copy of the magazine and get a subscription. If you haven't already, I recommend that you do. So, Adam, let's not waste any time. Um, capitalism is a social system, but also it's an economic system, first and foremost an economic system. So how would a socialist economy, as opposed to a market economy, be run? That's a very good question, Joe. And Obviously, we can't say exactly what socialism uh, might look like in terms of the economy. Um, but it's not true that we have no crystal ball at all. Um, you know, we can actually get glimpses uh, of how the economy uh, would operate under socialism by looking at how capitalism works, actually. Because Marx explained that every new society really emerges from within the womb of the old. And Actually, we can learn a lot from uh, what socialism would look like by studying kind of major multinationals today. Actually, probably learn more from studying that than we can from studying the Soviet Union and attempts to plan the economy then. Uh, There's actually an interesting book released a few years ago called The People's Republic of Walmart, which made a similar point to this. And actually, that whole book was based really on, on something that Marx and Engels pointed out over 150 years earlier, which is that under capitalism, you have free competition giving way and turning into monopoly capitalism. And within these monopolies, you have, uh, you know, enormous levels of planning taking place. You know, if you think about something like Walmart, for example, or Amazon, you know, these huge levels of, of, of detailed planning that allows them to track supply chains and products across the entire globe. But then between these big firms, it's complete anarchy under the market. And, uh, and socialism would basically try and utilize all this planning, all this technology, all these techniques, all this science and logistics, but we'd be using it in the interests of society rather than for the profits of the bosses. Um, and in that sense, I think it would be far easier to plan the economy under socialism uh, than it ever was under the USSR, because you've already got all this planning that exists uh, from the farms and the factories through to the shops and the supermarkets. You've now got a working class that's far stronger than you ever had in, in somewhere like Russia uh, and, and far more educated with skills and technology and uh, expertise. And I think under common ownership and workers' democracy, all of this could be utilized uh, in, and, and, and all these monopolies could be run as part of an overall plan of production in order to solve society's problems 
uh, and and all the needs that we face. Mm. So would you say that the principal issue is not so much the lack of planning, it's the lack of democratic ownership, or rather it's the problem of a very small number of people having total control over the means of production, over these technologies you describe, over the supply chains, over the levers of the economy, and they exploit those levers to maximize profit rather than actually to benefit humanity. So it's the problem, the question of ownership. That's it. It's a class question at the end of the day, right? Which class runs and controls all this technology, all this planning, and for whose interest, for what purposes? You know, we often say you can't really plan what you don't control, and you don't control what you don't own. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is a clear case of it. At the moment, the capitalists own the means of production. They own all this technology, and uh, and they utilize all this planning for, for their interests, for their profits, and we're saying under the ownership of the working class, the common ownership of society, all of these means of production, all this immense productive capacity, these productive forces, as we call it, could be utilized to solve all of society's problems, you know, in, in harmony with the planet as well. Mm. But can it work, Adam, is the point that I'm sure you've heard raised many times. Um, you think about the market system, you have the pressure of competition, which... Um, affects prices, supply and demand affects affect prices, um, you know, private producers and, and companies respond to market signals and people consume things that are advertised to them and it's an anarchic system but it seems to put food on the shelves, it seems to get commodities in store. Could you really plan something as complex as a national, let alone an international economy, consciously and centrally? Well, it's funny because obviously the apologists of capitalism who level these kind of accusations at us are the ones who are actually defending a system that isn't able to do any of these things that they claim it can, right? I mean, look at the inflation crisis that's still ongoing and uh, is, 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 is something that's been going on for now a couple of years now. That is clearly not able to provide, uh, you know, the goods and services that people need at an affordable uh, price. You know, there's, there's, there's clearly a lack of housing. There's clearly a lack of... Uh, of of basic services you know so the market is clearly failing on uh, on that front and then you've got the fact that as marx pointed out in his economic writings that capitalism periodically uh, goes into these crises crises of overproduction as he called it where he said in the in the communist manifesto it appears as though some sort of war of devastation has uh, has destroyed you know the the subsistence has left society with famine and hunger and he said why not because there's too little but because there's too much civilization too much industry mm. in other words that the inherent laws and logic of capitalism that marx explained and analyzed actually are precisely what lead not to this wonderful efficiency that libertarians people like hayek and mises talk about actually it leads to this incredibly inefficient situation these these enormous contradictions where we have homelessness alongside empty homes where we have uh, you know uh, uh, enormous amounts being produced and yet you know hunger and poverty uh, and and yeah basically it's a situation as marx described of poverty amidst plenty under mm. capitalism and actually if you resolve that contradiction that at the heart of it of production for profit and private ownership and the nation state then suddenly a lot of these uh, contradictions would go away. You know, we'd be able to put the homeless in the empty homes and actually you'd have a far more efficient system uh, under this rational democratic plan than what you see under capitalism and the market. 
It's also interesting to me that every time there's a major social upheaval, uh, a war, for example, we saw it as well during the pandemic, the capitalists, by their actions, and the governments, by their actions, demonstrate the superiority, when it comes down to it, of direct planning as opposed to market anarchy, because they always impose a huge amount of state control. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, it was only the government throwing billions into the economy, paying people's wages where they couldn't work, um, distributing vaccines, not particularly efficiently or effectively, but nevertheless, it was massive state intervention. You see the same thing during war economies, for example, um, and, and you know, national governments during uh, major uh, conflicts. The capitalists and the bourgeoisie show themselves that when the proverbial really hits the fan it's actually better to plan than to leave everything to the invisible hand of the market that's exactly right and in fact a lot of the libertarian criticisms of socialism uh, initially were came out of uh, of of the first world war and the fact that during the first world war as you say that you had you know capitalist governments imperialist governments basically taking over the entire economy obviously for their imperialist interests, for their war machines, but not for in the interests of society. But nevertheless, the fact that they were able to 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 show the the superiority of planning, as the Soviet Union also did, then uh, in the same period, you know, taking a very backward economic country into the space age in the space of a few decades, despite the devastation uh, of of the wars and the civil war and so forth. Mm. All of that showed the superiority of planning, uh, which which the the capitalists, as you say, kind of tacitly, uh, or implicitly, uh, kind of hint at with with the fact that you have this uh, monopoly capitalism, this kind of state monopoly capitalism, as uh, as Lenin called it. All of that is a tacit admission of the of the superiority of planning in reality, and mm. um, and that's why the libertarians are so, you know, hysterically attack uh, the Marxists and uh, and the communists. And and uh, yeah, in reality, the the system they uh, proclaim, you know, this idea of the the wonderful invisible hand of the free market that hasn't existed really ever. Mm. <laughs> the, the capitalist state has always been there to prop up uh, capitalism. Just look at the crisis of two thousand and eight, or look at the energy industry over the last couple of years. You know, as you say, the minute these crises happen, what 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 happens? You have the governments, the capitalist governments running uh to, to to prop up the banks you know pouring billions of taxpayers money into it if the if the capitalism was so efficient then why hasn't it been left to uh to sort out its own mess and mm. why has it always had to present the bill at the foot of the working class we all know the answer to that question because the these governments they don't serve our interests they're there to defend the the capitalists and uh and it's us the workers who are left to pay the bill in the form of austerity and debt well, that segues nicely into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is, aside from the economic question, what would the state look like under socialism uh, and communism? So I'm talking about the courts, the police, the kind of coercive apparatus, if you like, but also the political system, also the media, you know, these institutions that prop up capitalist rule what would they look like under a society where the economy was democratically planned by the working class? Well, yeah, I think each of those in turn, the police, the army, the courts, the media, that they, they all deserve their own episode, really. And, and they might well get their own episodes. <laughs> Good. Well, I mean, but I think to, before we touch on, on any of these institutions specifically, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the state? You know, what role does the state play under class society? And, and, and Engels and Lenin both explain this very well. They said 
that at the end of the day, the state is a product of class society. It's a tool in the hands of the ruling class for upholding inequality and exploitation and for protecting the interests of the ruling class. And they said under class society then, the, the state is like an alien force that, that sits above society and yet imposes itself upon us. And, and Lenin said in, in and quoting Engels, I think that, uh, you know, in the final analysis, the state can be reduced to armed bodies of men in defense of private property. And, and so that, that's the, the, got to be the starting point for asking what the state might look like under socialism is to first of all understand what role it plays, what, it, what, what function it, it has within society under capitalism. Now, under socialism, obviously, we'd have, we'd have had a revolution. We'd have, we would have smashed up the old state apparatus, as uh, Lenin points out in, in State and Revolution. What does he mean by that? He means, yeah, these armed bodies of men, the police, the army, the prisons, the courts, all of these institutions that are part of the, the, the bourgeois state apparatus, we would smash them up and, and replace them with, with a new set of institutions and structures that are there to serve the interests of the working class. Now you wouldn't have uh, a majority being ruled over by a minority, but the majority would be in control. And therefore, the state would take on a fundamentally different class character. It would be a worker's state rather than a capitalist state. And it would therefore be a state of the majority trying to defend the ownership of the, the common ownership of uh, the means of production, defending the interests of the whole of society, the majority of society against the older uh, rulers and, and any resistance that they might encounter, that we might encounter from them. And, uh, and also, you know, we'd have workers' democracy as well. So you've got this sham of, of democracy under, under, you know, bourgeois parliaments at the moment. I think uh, Lenin, again, quoting Marx, I think it was, said, you know, that the bourgeois parliament at the moment is is just uh, asking which member of the ruling class is going to be able to uh, rule over you for the next four or five years. And, and here we're talking about workers' democracy now, where the majority of society is involved in the running uh, and managing of, of industry, of, of the economy, and of society itself. So, yeah, you'd have, like I say, a, a state now, a worker's state that's completely of a fundamentally different character um, and, uh, and one that would gradually wither away as, uh, as, as the working class became more and more collectively involved in, uh, in, in the running of society. Can I just ask quickly, I can imagine some people asking, okay, that's all very well, but are you just saying that you take, you, you rip the Union Jack off a policeman or a soldier's apulets and you slap on a hammer and sickle and say that now it's a representative of a worker's state rather than a capitalist state. What what practically and concretely is different about the state under the control of the working class as opposed to under the capitalists? Like, would you still have a police force, for example? Well, I think, you know, again, you've got to look at the, the, the character of these things under capitalism. And the, the state, that particularly something like the police, you can see it is, it is an alien force under capitalism, mm. right? Like it is something that, that comes into working class communities, represses uh, them, oppresses uh, minorities and, uh, and the vulnerable, and, uh, and is there very clearly, as you can see, when there's any major protest uh, that threatens the establishment's interests, you can see the police there to defend the property and the profits, the privileges, the power of that ruling elite. So now what are we talking about? We're talking about the majority being in control of running society. So automatically, we're talking about a state that is no longer an alien force imposing mm. itself upon society. You could have, uh, you know, 
people uh, in communities who are there to, to, to help keep order and uh, keep the peace. But they'd be part of that community. You know, mm. they'd be accountable to that community. They could be uh, people who are elected or, or in any, you know, some way chosen by communities themselves. Uh, you know, in terms of in terms of the army, where where you've seen uh, kind of revolutionary civil wars before, and, and what we call dual power—the beginnings of a workers' state existing alongside the old capitalist state—you've seen instead of a, 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 a kind of standing army like you have under capitalism or class society, you've seen workers' militias. In other words, the working class organized and mobilized, actually being armed to defend the working class as a whole. And and again, that's the kind of principle that you would build upon in a workers' state. And so you can take those general ideas and apply them across the old state apparatus. And as I say, the the clearest question would be on the question of democracy itself. Right. Yeah. And, and and can we talk about that specifically? Because a workers' democracy, as opposed to a bourgeois democracy, a bourgeois parliament, where you have this grand building in the capital where a handful, a few hundred representatives um, attend and they discuss the affairs of states and nominally they represent the interests of their constituents, but really they represent the interests of capital. What do things look like under socialism? Well, again, let's go back to, to what Lenin said. He said that, that these kind of bourgeois parliaments, they're talking shops right. at the end of the day, right? Like they can't really do much more than talk. <laughs> okay, mm. They can pass these laws and so forth and and, and you know, spout all sorts of manner of hypocrisy and cant, as uh, as, as as Trotsky uh, quoted. But the uh, the the point is, at the end of the day, they can take whatever decision they like, but they couldn't really, you know, do anything uh, if if they don't have the permission of the bosses and the bankers. You right. know, they're the ones who who really make all the decisions. You know, it's in the boardrooms of the City of London that all the real decisions regarding the UK economy are taken, yeah. not inside Parliament. As this trust discovered to her sorrow. Exactly. And uh, and the market said no uh, when, when faced with her completely uh, reckless program. So, what, what you know, imagine for sake of argument that even if we did get in a, uh, a kind of left-wing, kind of reformist-style government like what mm. Corbyn was uh, calling for, uh, you know, in the Labour Party a few years ago, if that government, all it came to do, if, it, if all that happened was that it came into power, but didn't take any measures to actually take over the running of society, you know, actually running the economy, i.e. nationalizing the big monopolies and the banks, then it could pass all the legislation it likes, but it wouldn't be able to do anything. You know, it would be constantly sabotaged by the capitalists at every step. And uh, and that shows, you know, what would be necessary under a real workers' government. It would it wouldn't just be a, a parliamentary uh, legislative body, but it'd be a body that was again elected and accountable by the, to the working class as a whole, and it would have actual powers to be able to implement the decisions that the working class was democratically deciding. If we, as a society, decided that we needed to prioritize, uh, you know, investment in uh, in green energy and things like that then we'd actually have control over the energy monopolies. We'd have control over the infrastructure. We'd have control over the banks and the construction firms. And you'd be able to actually carry this program out, which you can't do under mm. capitalism, where all the power, all the real decision-making lies in the hands of the private owners, the bosses. 
How do we build communism? Issue 43 of In Defense of Marxism, the IMT's theoretical magazine, is out now, link in the description, and it aims to answer this question. There's a piece on the trials and tribulations of building the planned economy in the Soviet Republic, an article on the revolution in Soviet theatre, and another on the tragic lessons of the working class's defeat in Germany in 1923. Pick up your issue today. So you mentioned, and um, we had Ben, also from Socialist Appeal, talking about the states at some length, um, about the withering away of the workers' states. What about money? Do we still have money under socialism? Well, yeah, again, let's look at what role money plays now under capitalism. I think that's always got to be our starting point when we address any of these kind of what-if questions, is to understand the origins of these phenomena mm. and the development and then, you know, how they how they look today. And, and that really is what our, you know, guide to, to understanding how they might look tomorrow uh, is. So money, well, Marx explains, uh, money is ultimately a measure of value. Uh, value in, is, is the... Uh, the amount of socially necessary labor time, he says, com- you know, embodied within commodities. And, and commodities are the, these products that are, you know, produced for exchange. In other words, he says, under capitalism, all of society's wealth appears as an immense collection of commodities. So it, we're not producing for our own needs. We're not producing for some sort of common collective pot. We're producing as part of a, a, a you know, an integrated uh, worldwide econ- economic system in which uh, everything is produced for the exchange, for, for, for a market, basically. So as soon as we understand that, then we can start to understand the, the, you know, the future of money, if you like, under socialism. Because now, if we're taking over uh, these, the, the major monopolies, if we're taking production out of the market and, and actually putting it under a general common plan, then uh, then things aren't being produced as commodities anymore. And again, we can kind of see a hint of that under capitalism, right? You don't exchange money in general uh, when you go to use, you know, NHS services. I mean, there's some things that have been privatized and where yeah. very much you are paying Hopefully for Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, that won't have been rendered obsolete <laughs> as a comment. But for now, at least, most things, you will go in uh, to hospital and you won't be presented with a bill directly. And same in terms of uh, state education and, and various other public services. So already you have a situation where there are certain things that are taken out of the market and where money doesn't exchange hands. And why not be able to extend that to all of life's needs and, and not on the basis of scarcity you know, where, where we've got NHS you know, services falling apart or schools literally crumbling uh, as we speak. But an, in a situation of superabundance, you know, there's already the superabundance. The problem is, as we said earlier, that, that capitalism wastes this uh, and squanders this with, uh, with its crises, with its chaos. So we're saying now we take that, that superabundance that's there, all these immense resources, and it's part of a collective plan. And, uh, and, and more and more, as, as Marx put it, you would be uh, producing uh, in a state of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. You know, mm. you'd be able to walk into the shops and take what you need, knowing full well that the shelves will be restocked uh, and in time for more people to come back tomorrow and take what they need. There will be enough housing for everyone. As I said earlier, there's already more empty homes than there are homeless people. So, you know, if we can see already if we start taking things out of the market 
things cease being commodities. We don't have to worry about value uh, in that sense anymore. And we don't need money as a means of exchange uh, for, for obtaining the goods we need. And it's the same in terms of wages. Workers won't need uh, wages to go into to shops or, or to pay their rents or anything like that. All of these things will be provided under a collective plan uh, on the basis of need, not profit. And to be clear, we're not talking about just coming to power, following a revolution, snapping our fingers and legislating money out of existence. We're talking about developing the productive forces, harmonizing the political and economic systems, building uh, the planned economy and through developing the productive forces to a point that we've eliminated the basis for money to exist, as you explained, then it withers away. And that's exactly right. It's just like what we talked about with the state. This is going to take place over a number of years, you know, maybe not that long, to be honest, with the modern technology that's there, with the immense productive forces that are around, mm. all these technologies, particularly things like automation, which we can come on to more in a second, perhaps. Um, but all of these technologies and, and the, the immense level of science and, and productivity that exists, all of that could mean that, yeah, within the space of a generation, you could, uh, you know, eliminate uh, all the all the scarcity of or any remaining scarcity of of, of life's basic necessities, and and yeah, have this uh, this uh, you know society of superabundance in in at least all the basic uh, needs. And again, this wouldn't happen overnight, as you say. We're not we're not suggesting that the working class is going to come to power, and then every single shop and you know and uh, and little tiny business is going to be nationalised yeah. overnight. We're talking about the first steps will be nationalisation of these big giant monopolies, these huge multinational firms, the banks and uh, big businesses that, as I say, are already dominating the economy, that are already planning the economy in reality. And those would be the first starting point. And already, just with the top 100 or so monopolies, you could be planning the vast bulk of the economy. Mm. And then gradually, all the other smaller shops and businesses and so forth, you would incentivize them to come and join in and be part of that plan of production. We would mm. say to, to, to the middle classes, look, your life would be far better if your, if your uh, small firm wasn't you know, having to compete uh, on the market, but was actually you know, integrated into this general social plan, you'd have, uh, you know, you'd have a better living standard for yourself, you'd have a guaranteed uh, income. And, uh, and, and yeah, all that kind of insecurity that that, that middle class uh, kind of business owners and so forth face would be, uh, you know, replaced with part of a, a plan of production. So you'd gradually over time, uh, bring more and more of the economy under a general plan, less and less would be produced as commodities and money, therefore, like the state, would wither away over time. Mm. So I want to come back on that point that you raised regarding the new technologies that are available to us about automation, AI also, and a related question of work and the nature of work. Because We've said in a number of articles on Marxist.com and Socialist.net that there's this contradiction where you have these technologies that exist which should be able to do away with lots of the drudgery, lots of the dangerous and boring tasks that exist under capitalism and free humans' hands to do more meaningful things. But the reality is that they displace labor. You know, a shop brings in an automated checkout and fires three people who are running the tills manually. You see that basic... Uh, situation replicated in dozens of sectors and industries how do we uh, change our relationship to work under socialism and how do we deal with these technologies that capitalism has brought under being which under this system actually make our lives worse in many ways 
Yeah, I think you're right. If you look at any kind of science fiction and and even just, you know, articles in the news about real developments that are taking place with technology and science at the moment, you can see this this real uh, fear, if you like, of machines, of technology under capitalism. You know, it goes all the way back to, to the Luddite movement in the past. You know, these workers who are being replaced by uh, by by machinery and you know in, during the industrial revolution and uh, and and who smashed up the machines because they were worried these things were taking away their jobs and we should say that the, that the British state in response to that made frame breaking punishable by death yes I don't know if they'll 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 take similar legislation against attempts to I don't know, hack chat GPT or something these days but the the point is that yeah there's always been this this alienation if you like under capitalism where Workers know that it's not them who benefit from technology. We can see that under capitalism, technology doesn't liberate us; it enslaves us. Actually, you know, and that that that's true of uh, you know worries about Terminator-style uh, Skynet systems, you know, destroying the Earth or or the Matrix, you know, robots uh, kind of uh, colonizing us, basically turning yeah. us all into batteries. And and you can see it today as well, you know, in terms of people's fear about, you know, things like ChatGPT and modern AI kind of replacing not just blue collar work that's already been automated out of existence, but also, you know, white collar jobs and creatives and so forth. You see it with the strike taking place in Hollywood recently. And so, yeah, you can see very clearly the contradictions of technology under capitalism. And, and again, Marx explained all of this back in, in 150 years ago in Capital. You know, he has a whole chapter in that on the machine. And he talks about very clearly how you have this contradiction, how, you know, technology is not used to, to, to improve the living standards of the working class under capitalism. It's used to increase the profits of the capitalists. It's actually used to, as you say, lay off masses of workers on one side, but then used to, to increase the uh, intensity of work for those who, who do stay in jobs, you know. And, and it exacerbates inequality then rather than freeing up leisure time and so forth. So you can just, again, you can see by looking at that contradiction under capitalism, you can, you can instantly get a sense of what it might look like if you take away that fundamental barrier of private ownership. You know, if, if all this technology was commonly owned, you know, instead of being in the hands of the Jeff Bezoses and the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world, uh, if it was, uh, you know, part of a, a rational plan of production, then yes, you would obviously use automation, machinery, AI, all these things. You would you would happily uh, use it to to try and reduce uh, the workload on on all of us. And any remaining work that was there, we would share out and uh, and use it to eliminate unemployment. Uh, you know, there'd be no loss of pay. We would say though, you keep uh, keep the same amount of income that you need. Uh, but um, but obviously, with with the work shared out, you could reduce massively then the hours of the working day or the working week. You know, the idea of not just a four-day working week, which some people on the left are talking about, but even a three, two, one working day a week. You know, some people have talked about the idea that eventually work will be like, you know, uh, kind of military services in so yeah. is under capitalism in some countries. You know, you you, you come out of uh, university, you know, you'd have you'd have potentially lifelong education for the first uh, first thing though. But after you know your 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 main degree or something, your your education, you come into the world of work for a few years, and then you drop out and uh, have uh, yeah. have retirement from from your thirties onwards. You know, there's a really nice part of Rob Sewell's book about the history of chartism where he quotes one of the most radical chartists saying. We don't want to fight for an eight-hour day for bread. We want to fight for a three-hour working day for roast beef, plum pudding, and strong beer. 
And I think that uh, I can more or less heartily endorse that, uh, that that basic notion at the very least. Yeah, that sounds like a good program. I think we should incorporate that into our demands. But I think, you know, even uh, even some of the bourgeois economists have recognized this. I think John Maynard Keynes, who was this kind of liberal uh, English bourgeois economist 100 years ago, he uh, he actually wrote an article where he talked about the problem of, of luxury and leisure time. You know, mm. in other words, he, he thought within a century you would have, uh, you know, the, the main problem facing society would be, you know, too much leisure time. We'd all be so bored, you know, there'd be nothing to do. But obviously a century later, Keynes's predictions haven't come uh, to bear. In fact, I don't think any of us are, are too bored uh, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there is there is an enormous amount of work piling up on the working class's shoulders as enormous amounts of fortunes pile up in the bank accounts of the billionaires. And mm. that has been the nature of uh, automation, machinery, and technology under capitalism. And it, and it shows, yeah, the potential uh, if all of this was, as I say, under a socialist plan of production. Hmm. So last thing, we've been talking about uh, socialist plan of production, the task of socialist construction. Socialism, Marx described as the lowest form of communism. It's ultimately a transitional society. In terms of a communist society, which is where you reach the point of superabundance, to such a degree that you've eliminated the basis for money, the basis for work as we know it, the basis for social classes. What would that kind of society look like? Well, I mean, that is even harder to, to guess or estimate because obviously it's, it's going to be, you know, uh, based on, on, on the conditions at the time. It will be based on the level of development, uh, you know, across the world, you know, because uh, we're not just talking about you know, socialism or communism in one country, we're talking about communism as a world system, obviously, uh, an international plan of production um, and uh, and a world revolution. So, you know, it's it's harder to, to say exactly what communism looked like. One of the, the biggest reasons why it's so hard to say exactly what communism looked like is because ultimately it'll be up to the people in that society, you know, it'll be up to, to the working class uh, that's carried through the revolution to actually uh, decide, you know, what what the priorities of society are, and and uh, and what are the main tasks that face them, and how to organize exactly. You know, Marx never tried to lay out a blueprint for for what a future society would look like. He focused on on explaining the contradictions presently under capitalism, and uh, and and the task of needing a revolution to to resolve those contradictions, and and to bring you know the the economy into harmony. Uh, you know, with with the planet and so forth. Now, the other the other important factor is that people's consciousness itself will be radically changed in the process of revolution and in the process of being in power. You know, in other words, you know, the working class uh, that we see today is not the same working class that we're going to see tomorrow. In be it might be the same people physically, but everyone's mindset will be will be fundamentally transformed. You know, Marx pointed out that it's social conditions that create social consciousness and that the ideas in any society, the dominant ideas, are always the ideas of the ruling class. What does that mean today? It means that how we relate to each other, how we, uh, how we interact, how we think, you know, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us, how we, how we see questions like the environment, it's all shaped under capitalism by the logic of the market, of, of the greed, the competition, uh, the inequality, the, the the artificial scarcity, the want, the the misery that capitalism, uh, you know, uh, is responsible for, 
And now if you've got a situation where the working class is in control uh, and actually in, you know, in charge of its own destiny and has the power to actually carry out its decisions, that's going to fundamentally change how people relate to each other and the world around them. You know, just to give a little hint, actually, and it, and it relates back to this question of work as well. You know, people, people who think that, you know, we're all inherently lazy. Well, yeah, I think if anyone doesn't enjoy going into work under capitalism, that's because they know that when they do go into work, that work is not benefiting them. It's benefiting the bosses. And mm. that's why people feel lazy, if you like, or, or we would put it alienated. You know, in other words, you know, the idea of quiet quitting and all this kind of yeah. thing, you know. That's that's why you get this uh, this 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 uh, this alienation under capitalism because people aren't really in control and and they don't benefit from their own labor. They're not in control of their own lives. You put people in control of their own lives. And a, and a really good example, I remember speaking to some Egyptian activists who'd been involved in the Arab Spring and in, in the the revolutionary movement in 2011 in Tahir Square in Cairo, and they said that. You know, just the, the the mere act of of being involved in that revolution changed people's entire mindset as to how they saw their own city. You know, before that, they said Cairo was filthy. People didn't care about littering the streets. They didn't care about uh, you know uh, how how uh, the you know how how the neighborhoods looked. But they said the in the revolution, people made, went to extreme lengths to make uh, the the place tidy and clean because suddenly they respected their the surroundings that they were in control of. You know, they had taken control of the streets and they wanted to look after it. And I think that kind of gives you a glimpse of the change of consciousness that you would see across the whole of society. You know, uh, people would suddenly care about yeah their their own work. They would care about each other. They'd care about the communities. And uh, and you'd see a complete, uh, you know, shift in, in the mindset of, uh, of the masses. Well, that's an inspiring view of the future, Adam. Um, thank you so much. And one more time, I thoroughly recommend you purchase In Defense of Marxism, issue 43, and give Adam's article on the Soviet economy a read. It's really, really interesting. I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will as well. So... Thank you one more time for joining us, Adam. And thank you again for having me on the Spectre of Communism. And we will see you next week.